Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we return to you with the wonderful 1987 rom-com Moonstruck, which we highly recommend. Cher stars as a 37-year-old Italian-American woman who is engaged to marry a boring middle-aged man, but when she meets her fiancé's brother, played by Nicolas Cage, she embarks on an affair that could change her life. Uh, A great movie. We were planning to uh, podcast about this over a month ago, but we were interrupted by events. Um, Morgan, very glad to hear your voice and see your face again. Yes, it has been over a month since we've done this because I got sick with what certainly appears to be a mild case of coronavirus. Although I did get a test and they told me I did not have coronavirus. But also the tests are notoriously unreliable. So, yes. And uh, it was, whatever this was, was, I mean, I did not have to go to the hospital. Like, I'm fine. But it has been very unpleasant. And uh, my lungs are still kind of not 100%. Um, Obviously, we are doing this, so it's fine. But I am not at 100% capacity. And I had a few weeks where I really was having trouble breathing. But also, like, bizarre symptoms. Like, we were discussing this before we started recording. But uh, I had around three days where I was having, like, weird tingling all over my body. Which is not something I have experienced before in life. And wasn't painful, but was weird. I have seen this in the news and people in your life perhaps will be able to tell you this as well. Listeners, it takes a long time for this thing to fucking go away. It just will not stop. So this is why we have been off for some time is that every time I feel like I'm getting better, I'll like have a coughing fit and then it's not better. But it appears to finally be sort of on the way out, which is good. Uh, I have spent this period of time watching lots of movies and many seasons of Seinfeld while lying on the couch, which is a great way to spend time if you can't do anything else, I guess. Gabby, how have you been enjoying uh, your quarantine the past month? Well, you know, my life has been much easier than yours. I obviously have not been leaving the house. I've been doing a lot of housework and cooking, helping take care of a baby, going to work, I think I probably have it. I, I feel very lucky by comparison. Yes. Yeah, I mean, even I have an apartment and, you know, was getting groceries delivered, etc. So all things considered, it could have been much worse. But around week like four of the breathing being bad, you're just like, when will this, when will this be over? <laughs> so uh, I am very happy to be doing this again to see your beautiful face and to be talking about an excellent yeah, a movie. great movie a i'm glad we're movie. starting again yeah <laughs> with, with a like masterpiece it would have been a bummer if we'd been like we're gonna talk about i don't know something bad <laughs> and then we're like we're back with a pan of a piece of crap i had never seen moonstruck i actually watched it twice i watched it when we were originally planning to do it and then i watched it again last night because i watched like 30 movies in between and i was like i just need to see this again and it is streaming on Amazon Prime in the US. So if you have access to that and you're in the United States, it's available for free. So I watched it a second time. It was one of those movies that I sort of always meant to see. People talk about it a lot. And it's a classic that is very beloved by people because it's a romantic comedy. So it engenders a certain kind of emotional attachment that a lot of other classic movies don't. Um, but I had just never gotten around to it. And I don't have any feelings about Cher either. I mean, I don't dislike her, but I don't have like an emotional attachment to her. So it was never on the top of my list of like things I had to this see. This is what she won her Oscar for. 
she did indeed, as did uh, Olympia Dukakis, who plays her mother in the movie. John Patrick Shanley, who wrote the screenplay, also won an Oscar. It got nominated for a ton of stuff as well. Um, but it was having a big moment on film Twitter. If people are on Twitter, these old movies will sometimes just sort of have a moment where like everyone is talking about them all of a sudden. And I was like, I should watch Moonstruck. I should just do it. It's, you know, it's a big gap in my movie knowledge. And I watched it and I was like, this movie is perfect. <laughs> like, it is a perfect movie. I, don't, I have some qualms with it, which we'll discuss, but there's a quality that some movies have where you just wouldn't change a single shot of it, even if you don't agree with everything. And this movie has a sort of magical quality where every single thing about it just feels right for what the movie is doing. And every performance is totally pitch perfect. It looks beautiful. It's shot in largely in Brooklyn Heights, uh, where a friend of mine who loves this movie lives, and she couldn't believe I'd never seen it, and like went on a quarantine walk and took pictures of the house and sent them to me. And it just has this uh, place in a lot of people's lives, I think, that is really powerful. And uh, it's cool to watch those movies and realize that they are as great as they're sort of cracked up to be, and also kind of weird, which I wasn't necessarily. Well, it's expecting. like a modern Shakespeare um, comedy. Because it's yes. very silly, but it's also for adults, and it's very kind of ingrained in reality, while also being like, people behave in like absurd ways. Right. Well, Roger Ebert loved this movie. Um, he wrote about it twice. Both of them are available on the Roger Ebert site. We'll link to them in the show notes. But um, there's like a regular review from when it came out. And then he had his like great movies sort of project. And then he'd write about these films he loved at greater length. And so there's a piece from later when he wrote about it again. And what he said about it, which is so right, is that what sort of makes it so magical is the tone, which feels very, very distinct. And it is a romantic comedy, like very clearly a romantic comedy. It ends with an engagement, which is how classical comedies end right with a wedding but it has a melancholy quality about it the whole time there are a lot of older characters she points out and a lot of discussion of death which is not necessarily what you always expect well you see that the film like that it kept reminding me of was the farewell because it's like an yeah. ensemble story and also there's kind of elements of it being about like kind of the italian Amer american kind of immigrant communities like to a lesser extent but it's definitely like about italian americans in a really explicit way in a way that some reviewers at the time found to be uh slightly stereotypical <laughs> in which yeah so fair. like several because i was like afterwards i was i was like Cher isn't italian is she <laughs> i was kind of looking up Cher like Cher isn't italian <laughs> well what's so funny about this is that John Patrick Shanley, who wrote this, is an Irish-American. Norman Jewison, who directed it, is Canadian, in fact, and is a Protestant. I do not believe he has any Italian background. I guess it's possible, but not to my knowledge. And, as you say, Cher is not Italian. Olivia Dukakis is not Italian. And... Obviously, many of the other actors are. And, like, I don't think this movie is, like, problematic or whatever. But it is just a little bit funny that it is so unbelievably, like, they're shaking their hands and they're saying, practically saying, like, Mamma Mia, oh my god. It opens, it, like, the music it opens with is, <laughs> like, Dean Martin. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, at one point, her father literally makes the Don Corleone, like, pushing his hands under his chin gesture because he's so upset. And 
it wouldn't work if the acting wasn't so unbelievably good, but all of them feel like completely real people, even if they are kind of stereotypical. So, like, she has an aunt and uncle who also live in this beautiful house in Brooklyn with the family, um, and a grandfather as well, and they are all small characters in the movie, and it's not like they have huge storylines, but they're very integral to the film in the sense that they give you an idea of who this person is and her life with her family, and they could easily be, like, total just Italian stereotypes, but because the acting is really good and the writing is distinct enough to make them feel real, it the movie gets away with it. But it is definitely walking a line. <laughs> that, you know. I mean, the family dynamic really works. And also, they've done a very good job of kind of, you know, the characters all look real, you know, which is kind of mind-blowing considering the fact that it's Cher, who does have one of the finest makeover scenes I have seen on film Great cliche, works really well, but it's like the way they introduce her is that she is 37 years old, so, you know, she's over the hill. She's a widow who lives with her parents, and it's this kind of relic of, like, 20th century working class prosperity, where, like, she works as a bookkeeper in just a a deli, I think, like her aunt and uncle's deli, and they just have this lovely house, like Morgan said, that's very warm and nice, and she's kind of gearing up to get engaged to her boyfriend, Johnny, who... I think in the parlance of the 21st century would definitely be described as a better male. <laughs> he is just sort of, he's a bit of a wet blanket. He's not very interesting. They're basically getting married because that's what you do. And kind of the philosophy here is she's not going to find anyone better. He's quite nice. He's comfortable. He needs someone who could look after him, which is her. Um, and then immediately after they get engaged, he has to fly to Sicily because his mother is dying and he is extremely attached to his mother which leaves her with this weird duty of getting back in touch with his estranged younger brother, who turns out to be Nick Cage. And Nick Cage has this a tremendous introduction. <laughs> because he works in a bakery. And this is perhaps the most virile bakery scene ever committed <laughs> to film. Where she sort of frumpily goes over to try and talk to this man at this bakery which is staffed by some very funny and very real teenage girls who clearly at least one of them has a crush on him and we first see him sort of shoveling coal in a white tank top into the fiery furnaces of the sexy bread oven (laughs) and this was sort of 20 something Nick Cage so this was like during a period where he was like sexy Nick Cage which was I mean, Nick Cage has always been very sexual, but the attractiveness of Nick Cage was a relatively narrow window, in my opinion. And, you know, you see him and you're like, interesting introduction, definitely very different to his brother. And he immediately just launches into this, like, incredibly characteristically maniacal monologue about how much he he hates his brother and, like, his brother ruined his life and, like, ruined his only relationship and then he lost his hand and then you discover that Nick Cage has a prosthetic hand and it's just, like, a lot has happened (laughs) in this two-and-a-half-minute sequence and the only person who could possibly deliver this role would be Nick Cage. And sometimes you strike upon the correct role for Nick Cage. Like, he's done a lot of them. A lot of the time they're in bad movies, but when he gets a role that's his, which he's very good at, he's good at selecting the correct roles for Mr. Nick Cage. God, what an experience. So, have you ever seen Raising Arizona? No. That was the same year as this. 
can you imagine? It's just <laughs> mind-blowing. So I watched that also in the past couple of weeks. Uh, on It's on HBO at the moment. Uh, and he is so good in that and has a similar sort of bananas haircut situation. It's the same in both these movies. It's very kind of triangular. And he is great in both these films. And I was just like, wow, no one would have suspected that <laughs> anything that was going to happen in the next 30 years. Yeah, his opening monologue here, I when I watched it the first time, I was literally grinning like oh, a maniac God, and had my hands just on shrinking. my face. I was like, <laughs> this is so good. And every line of dialogue that he says in the entire movie is that level of just like, what the fuck? And it's simultaneously kind of silly. I mean, it is silly. But he is very serious. Like, he means it very, very sincerely, everything that he's saying. And it's just, like, the language is just heightened and serious enough that you're not just laughing at him. You know? Like, it is funny, but it's not, you're not meant to think of him as just a clown. Like, there is something about it that is clearly deeply felt. Well, like, the thing is, right, even though he is this really cartoonish figure, you do meet people who feel everything extraordinarily strongly, and that does make life extremely difficult for you. (laughs) Yes. So he's obsessed with opera. This is one of his characteristics, that he loves opera. And he convinces her to go to the opera with him. And uh, they're seeing La Boheme. I know nothing about opera, but... It struck me that that is basically the tone of the movie, not La Boheme specifically, but like this sort of operatic, like hugeness, right? That the movie is funny and it's a romance. And so it technically is a romantic comedy, but it's structurally quite different from a lot of what we think of as like romantic comedies in the movies, where there might be family members involved in the film, but. And certainly, like, a best friend or, like, a group of friends who people ping commentary off of. But this movie is so about her family unit. And the central couple is the center of the drama, but it's just one part of all this other stuff going on. And in both the, like, classic rom-coms from the 30s and 40s, and then also the Renaissance in the 90s, which would come sort of right after this movie, the focus is much more on the two people and the drama that's going on between them and the comedy that's going on between them. And with this, it's like they have these few really magnetic scenes, and it's clearly fated that they're going to be together. Like, it's just obvious that it has to happen, because they have this unbelievable magnetic attraction to each other, and it just yeah she's engaged to this other guy but like clearly she's gonna wind up with him because she she can't help it and then there's all this other stuff going on with her family and it's just set up in a really different way which I thought was interesting and part of that is to the movie's benefit because it makes it sort of different and interesting and part of it I think is a little bit to the movie's detriment because it's so much a fait accompli that they're gonna get together like the rival isn't even in the country. Like, he's, he's just, just such a non-entity, right? I mean, like, in terms of the stuff that's kind of not directly about the main romance, it's very slice of lifey, which is definitely something that kind of I associate with 80s and 90s movies. And I couldn't I couldn't think of any. And I was just like, I'm sure I've seen a lot of films from the 80s and 90s that are about, you know, a group of people just sort of doing stuff, which was also 
like a very kind of popular kind of type of uh, just autobiographical writing at the time. But that's the vibe here. But also the central people are just like wild. Yes. I mean, I think you said to me after we both watched it a month or so ago that like, they're just so unrelatable. Yes. In every way. <laughs> yes, because actually when I was watching it, that's what kind of my friends and I were talking about was just that usually with a rom-com, especially kind of the... This was like shortly before the really glossy era of 90s rom-coms, but all of those, even when they're quite silly, there's definitely the feeling that the characters are meant to be relatable. And a lot of the time it's like, oh, I've got this office job and I'm just like a nice girl or whatever, you know. And these people could not be less relatable. There's like, I cannot, like, obviously you can relate to kind of the family dynamics and sort of that sort of thing. But the way their brains work, Cher and Nick Cage in this film is just like, what, what the fuck? Which is the, it's the absolute kind of Shakespeare comedy logic where they're just doing stuff where it's like, okay, yes, lots of people fall in love with first sight and have like a sexy affair. Okay, normal behavior. The way you two are going about this is beyond... It's just like the scene, like they meet and they have this like one night stand and she like threateningly cooks him a steak. It's just, it's so much. And all of the monologues, like definitely I think my favourite part was where Nick Cage kind of explains that he loves two things in this world, opera and you. And I'm like, you've known her for like 36 hours. (laughs) Well, this is the thing, right? So like the logic of the old school romantic comedies from the 30s and 40s is very much that people are just in love with each other very fast and it's fine. But this is like, if you actually saw that happen in real life, because the tone of this is so real that you're like, this makes it really wild because it's not in sort of Hollywood land. (laughs) Right. But also you just it doesn't feel fake at all because he's so heightened as a person that you're just like well yeah this man has just decided that this is how he feels this is how nick cage goes about his life (laughs) yep whereas i feel like in sort of bad rom-coms that have come out more recently and i'm not even thinking of anything specific but like this is definitely a trope that happens it'll the romance happens way too quickly and you're like, this is just not plausible. Whereas with this movie, it never felt fake to me because I was just like, these are just maniacs. Yeah. <laughs> because ordinarily okay. there's, you know, if you're watching what I would really just classify as like a light rom-com, you're, you're going into it in kind of a shallow way and your job as the audience is to just accept that if someone meets someone's eyes when they drop their textbooks in the high school corridor or whatever, that is a reasonable reason to fall in love instantly. And it's like, we all accept that because that's the trope. Whereas here, it's just like, well, I can't personally get on board with whatever the fuck's going on here, but it fits your personalities to a T. Well, I think there's two things going on. One is that it's so much about sex. Yes. Which these movies, it's always like, subliminally part of what's going on if the movie's good. Like, those old older movies, when they were being made during the Hayes Code and they couldn't actually talk about sex, they're often very sexy because it's sort of in the air. The more recent ones, if they're good, they've got some sort of sexual tension. Often the bad ones don't achieve that, and so it's just sort of like, why do we care? But this is so much, like, I was so surprised that. that they had sex, like, immediately. Literally, he throws the table to the side, the plates crash to the floor. He, like, stands in contraposto position above her to, like, show off his muscles and then, like, grabs her and, like, (laughs) carries her to bed. And she's just, like, basically, like, ravish me. I mean, it's really a lot. And so 
you're meant to understand that part of what's going on isn't just like, oh, they had a nice chat and they've decided they're in love now. It's like, oh no, that's not what's going on at all. And it's supposed to contrast him with the brother, right? Who's this like perfectly nice, boring, totally sexless. Yeah, he's just this sort guy. of wet fish. And then yeah. the kind of the combination here is like Cher has just been really bored and complacent, and Nick Cage is just a volcano of a human. Yes. There's a great moment when he's carrying her. She asks, he picks her up and she asks what he's doing. And she says, I'm taking, he says, I'm taking you to the bed. And her head literally falls back because <laughs> she's just like, oh my God. And I was like, you know what? Fair enough. <laughs> like, sure. But also he is, I think, number one on the list of like romantic comedy men who, if they were a real person and you encounter them in real life, would like he would be in jail like not just like an advisable to date like literally this man would be in prison and you just have to accept that in the world but it's like film, every single person in the entire city would know who this man was is that right. actually come to think of it i hadn't considered this before but the idea that she had not heard of this man independently is the least right. plausible because it's like okay you're part of the close-knit italian-american new york community this guy, admittedly, is estranged from your fiancé, but people would know their brothers, and this is the weirdest man alive. <laughs> and he has a very distinctive prosthetic hand. He's like a hot yes. guy in his 20s with a prosthetic hand who can't have a conversation without screaming hysterically and runs a popular bakery. I'm sorry. <laughs> Everyone in the city would know him. It's not a complaint about the film, but I love the idea <laughs> of just everyone being like, oh, that guy, huh? She's she's going for that one. Well, there's right. someone for everyone. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it's exactly. And of course, that the other girl in the in the bakery is just like, I love him so much. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yes. of course you do. <laughs> but again, if this were real life, you would be like, I'm literally running in the other direction, and like, if he follows me, call the cops. <laughs> I mean, that's like ninety percent of Nick Cage characters. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So you just have to kind of accept that it works in the movie. Like there was a moment or two the first time I watched it where I was like, this is maybe a little too much. And then I watched it again and I was like, no, it's fine. I don't care. <laughs> like Whatever. He just is so sort of hapless and sincere that he doesn't seem threatening, even though he is doing things that actually would be threatening. If they happened in this real life, thing, like it's right? just because it's like in, in real life, and also in like ninety nine percent of just fictional depictions of this type of person, he's very much the kind of person who you can imagine just like waving a handgun in the middle of a relationship argument. And it's like in real life, you're like this person is just all warning signs, as Morgan says. And also, when films try to make that look romantic, I'm just like this is misogynist propaganda. And thanks to the performance, and just the preposterous tone of all of his scenes in this movie, you you get enough of the sense of vulnerability that it doesn't seem like his vulnerability is being used as an abusive tool, you know? And it's like, yes, these people are going to have 10 arguments a day for the next 60 years, but they are both are incredibly enthusiastic about that happening and love it. <laughs> so it's like, okay, right. you're the one exception to this rule. <laughs> and I think a key part of this is that the other person is Cher. The other person is Cher. Very right? powerful. And even, she is great in the movie. Like, again, I'm not someone who has a strong, like, feeling about Cher. 
and obviously I'm watching this many decades after the fact, so it's not like I'm seeing it in the middle of the cultural context of it coming out, but still, it's Cher. And even without that, she's just older than he is. So it has this sort of sense of, there's just a context within the movie even, of it's not quite the same as if like he were 10 years older than her and doing all yeah. this, where you'd be like, like, yeah, that's really creepy. Like, yeah. She's older than him in real life than she's meant to be in the movie, I think, because he's like 20 years younger than Danny Aiello in real life, who plays the brother. And like, that's clearly not supposed to be what is really happening. But regardless, like she, he's clearly younger and it's just like, just thinks she's so awesome. And you're like, okay, sure. Like, that's fine. I loved the makeover in this so much. It's a great makeover. Yeah, it was so, because it's like, yes, in this film, like when she's introduced, she is quite frumpy, but she's not kind of overly frumpy. She looks like a normal person in 1987, like a normal, unfashionable person. Um, And she's got like slightly graying hair, but she is recognizably Cher, you know. You cannot disguise the concept of Cher. (laughs) But then when she has this makeover to go to the opera with Nick Cage, which also I love as a character detail for him, because it's like, like Morgan says, it's very fitting for him to be like, I love Puccini. But it's also most of the time in movies when people go to the opera it's a really blatant class signifier and it's either about people being rich or about people being snobby and in this case it's like yeah actually loads of people who don't have much money go to the opera and enjoy art and culture like it's a very classist stereotype I think and especially in New York where it's like you know you you can go to the opera for a treat and I'm sure in 1987 it was more affordable yes but anyway Cher has this makeover but it's just like a normal wig. It's like, yeah, of course she understands how to wear makeup and stuff. She's 37. She just hasn't really done it because it's not been a priority. And she gets her hair done and she wears this dress. And oh my fucking God, she is so hot. She's so... <laughs> I was just like, this is the most effective movie makeover I have ever seen. She looks unbelievable. A goddess. <laughs> well, what's so great about it is that she's already slept with him. Yes. Yes, she's just doing her, she's just like, well, I'll just do it for fun. Fuck it. She buys all this stuff post-hairdo, post which is, I mean, her hair literally increases like 200% in volume. It's amazing. And sits in a room and is like drinking wine and has her purchases strewn about the room in front of her. And I was just like, this is great. <laughs> like, excellent. And then, yeah, it's it's really, really satisfying and not... I mean, she obviously looks very different afterwards, but it doesn't have the same feeling of, like, ugly duckling at just one that a lot of these movies do, I think, because she does look really good beforehand. It's just, she doesn't look like Cher, you know. But, uh, we should talk a little bit about the other parts of the movie. Because, as I said, that they are obviously, like, the romance at the center, but there's a lot going on with the rest of the family, and specifically her mother, Rose, who's played by Olympia Dukakis, and her father, who is having an affair with a, another younger, trashy woman. This other woman does not get get much redeeming value. Yeah, she's, um, a, she's a kind of stereotypical, simpering, middle-aged mistress. Yes. But uh, her mother knows that this is happening, and is sort of trying to figure out what to do about it. And she keeps asking people asking men why do men chase women and she thinks that it's because they fear death and she's like searching for someone to say that so that she'll be validated by this and um she winds up 
having this dinner at the sort of local restaurant with this NYU professor who serially dates his students, whom we've seen briefly in an earlier scene in this restaurant. And this obviously does not end well for him because his students always get mad at him and leave. And he is played by this actor, John Mahoney, who does a really great job with a brief scene uh, at conveying that this guy is not like evil, but just kind of a mess and a little bit sleazy. And um, I found Olivia Dukakis kind of the best thing about this movie, actually. Uh, she's a much more normal person than <laughs> Sharon Nick Cage, so there's a little more to like grab onto, I think, as a character. And she's clearly upset about her husband cheating, but it's not like she's about to storm out. She's just kind of like, how do I fix this psychological problem? Basically, like he needs to get over it. And um, this, I found the scene with her and this guy at the restaurant like amazing because she's clearly enjoying flirting with him, but like nothing's going to happen. And she gets that he's just like an immature, like baby. And she says to him, you know, why do men chase women? I think it's because they fear death. And he's like, no, 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 it's really, I do it because, and then he gives this long explanation that's literally just like him explaining that he fears death without saying that he fears. <laughs> she really gets like the big emotional moment at the end of the movie in a lot of ways because she confronts the the husband about this and they have their sort of reconciliation. And it reminded me a lot of um, the Philadelphia story, which has a similar situation where uh, Catherine Hepburn's father in that movie is estranged from the family because he's sleeping with this dancer in New York, although they can't actually say that he's doing it because of the Hays Code. So he has to be like, nothing really was happening. And you're like, sure. Okay. And Catherine Hepburn is really upset about this. And her mom kind of wants the dad to come back. And Catherine Hepburn's like, no, you have to have principles. And the movie basically winds up scolding Catherine Hepburn eventually for feeling this way. And like, he should just come back and it's all fine. And it's one of the things about the movie that I really don't like, even though I love that film because it's like, I mean, if they want to get back together, fine, but it's reasonable to be upset about this and it kind of feels sour. And this movie feels like it's doing a similar thing of doing something with the family, but giving the mother character her interior life in a really interesting way that I found really, really rewarding. And it doesn't demonize the dad exactly. He's just kind of this schlub who is a mess because he's having a midlife crisis. So... Uh, yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was really great. There's also a really fantastic kind of character actor role in this movie, um, who is her grandfather because she lives with uh, Cher lives with her parents, but also her her grandfather who's Italian, who's played by Fyodor Chelyapin or possibly Kaliapin, um, who is a Russian actor, but he has done a lot of Italian movies. I assume he was fluent in Italian. And he is just this guy who has this absolutely iconic face. And he was also in The Name of the Rose, if you've seen that. And I was just like, where did I see this guy before? And the answer is The Name of the Rose. Because if you've seen Fyodor's face once, you'll definitely see it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's really wonderful. He has like five lines of dialogue in the whole movie, but he really makes them count. He has five dogs and they travel around him. And the mom resents the dogs. But the dad says the dogs can stay. And it's just like these little details that are really satisfying. I was thinking of like mafia movies watching this movie because this is like a decade after the Godfather movies are 
they're doing their huge thing, right? Um, shortly before Godfather 3 finally makes its way to theaters. And it feels like such a deliberate, if, if slightly silly comment on, like, the Italian-American family, right? Like, they're doing all this sort of big stuff in a way that has typically, in American culture, or film and TV anyway, manifested through the mob, which is all about the family. And this is doing that, but without any of that going on. It's just that these people all live in a house together and kind of squabble, but love each other and whatever. And it was it was just interesting to me in that context, because it felt like that had to have been part of the pitch initially, to be like, well, what if they're not mafia? And they just have a plumbing business and go out to dinner. It's like, yeah, okay. But uh, of course, at the end, the fiance comes back and has to be told that um, he's not going to be marrying Cher after all. Bye bye. It's done well, but it is a little bit anticlimactic, I think. The end. Which I think goes back to the fact that it's so obvious from so early what's going to wind up happening. And all of these movies, of course, you know who the girl's going to wind up with. Like, it's, you know, it's clear. But the fact that he's such an non-entity the whole time, I think, does make the end a little bit, like... I mean, it's good, but... She also basically just winds up, like, agreeing to do... To go along with Nick Cage for the second half of the movie in a way that is not, like, offensive, but made for the drama to be a little bit like, yep, well, she's just, like, sitting there being like, yeah, yeah, which I found not the most satisfying conclusion to one of these things I've ever seen. But I think that's what happens when the movie sacrifices that big drama to be more about the family stuff, which, as I said, I really liked. So it's sort of which side you're focusing on. Is there anything else we want to discuss about Moonstruck. Um, only that food is really crucial in this movie. Yes. Of course, because the Italian <laughs> because it's an Italian and American <laughs> movie. And well there's just loads of really great food stu- food scenes and of course Nick Cage is a baker. Like so I already mentioned there was the scene where Cher aggressively makes a steak for Nick Cage and is like, you'll eat it and you'll like it. But but the one scene that I just remembered was there's a breakfast scene where the mother makes fried eggs like in, in toast where you cut a hole in the toast and then you fry the egg in the toast, which is egg in a nest or egg in a hole. Apparently this was literally referred to by some people as Moonstruck eggs because this movie was so popular that people were like, I want Moonstruck eggs. But the thing I always think of this as is eggy in a basket, which is not, just to be clear, not a term that anyone has ever used in the human world, but is what the Wachowskis said for V for Vendetta, they have a scene where a British person makes, quote, eggy in a basket. And every British person was like, what the fuck is eggy in a basket? And it's what the Wachowskis think British people talk like. And I love them. And I love that in that alternate universe where V for Vendetta takes place, eggy in a basket is a traditional British food. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it should be. That is very funny. Yeah, the steak is really good because she's returning his manhood to him via a raw steak. (laughs) He tells her he wants it well done, and she says, you're going to eat it bleeding. And, of course, the maimed hand is a symbol of castration. I mean, it's not very subtle. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, the the Freudian stuff in this movie is is pretty on the nose. All done again with such unbelievable sincerity of vision that you gotta just be like, sure. Nick Cage's dick is his hand that got cut off, but it's back now, baby. So now we know what love is. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's the movie so good. We recommend it highly. I was had such a good time watching it. It's a total like fairy tale New York, obviously, but it made me very happy to watch anyway, as someone who's been stuck in her apartment for a month and a half. <laughs> One of the things that's kind of cool about it is that it's very eighties, obviously, like the clothes that she's wearing are especially post makeover, like very eighties, but it has a kind of nineteen fifties feel to it, which is very deliberate and adds to the sort of um fable-esque quality i think feels a little bit timeless and that part of brooklyn is still basically looks the same because it's a historic district so great great movie and you should all watch it too norman jewis and the director we should also say also directed in the heat of the night which i also watched in this past month which is crazy to me like what a career great movie too but just like bizarre to have those two things as like the two things you're both known for rollerball haven't heard of it don't he, know that well, one. He directed Fiddler on the Roof, which is a real movie. And he directed Rollerball, which I have not seen, but Rollerball is an iconic... I mean, I guess you could describe it as a sports movie. It's a dystopian sports movie. And I think that I would enjoy, I would enjoy it. But yeah, he's, he's done an interesting range of films, has this man. <laughs> Still alive. So, you know, stay indoors, Norman. Uh, yes. That is our episode on Moonstruck. Thank you all for listening as always. Next week we will be discussing the Elaine May classic Mikey and Nikki at the request of a patron. We have had several generous patrons uh, sign up to have us watch episodes at their request which you can do at our Patreon if you so choose. So we have some fun episodes coming up. A very eclectic range of movies because you are all just deciding for us so it will be fun to sort of bounce around oh, we've had genres. so many good requests some really yeah, good ones it's gonna be it's gonna be really good i have never seen mikey and nikki it's one of those movies that i've been like urgently meaning to see for years and somehow it just never happens so i'm really looking forward to it if you're in the u.s it is on the criterion channel i'm sure it's available through other platforms in other countries so you can find that there in general we would like to say a huge thank you to the people who are uh, sponsoring us through Patreon. We've had a great month, uh, which is just very exciting for us given how bad a time it is for everyone. So we are very, very grateful to you guys. We will have stuff up there in the coming weeks, including at some point in the future episodes about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's finally and time, tracks. baby. <laughs> yes. Lord of the Rings. So that's not going to be in the next week or two but that is coming um once my lungs are at full capacity and we could not be more this excited. is going to be the pinnacle of the overinvested experience literally i can think of nothing <laughs> that is more suited to our baked into our dna yes uh i was beyond obsessed as a tween as were you as were we all this was the found- <laughs> yeah this was the foundational thing for us as uh well middle schoolers for me there was an article on the cut today about lego lost girls and aragorn girls and i was like oh my god the internet knows <laughs> we all went through this together um 
I haven't seen these movies in years, and you haven't seen them in a long time. Many years, yeah. Many years. So uh, it's going to be really, really fun. So again, thanks to all of our patrons who have been sponsoring these things. We will shout them out individually, of course, when we get to the episodes. But um, you guys are awesome. We hope that you are all as safe as possible and healthy um, and watching at least some good movies during this time. Uh, we look forward to continuing to podcast. So our Patreon is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast if you want to find that. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing at The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.